My dad said that that when he first started working there, they'd put dough on in the pan and then either put cheese with sauce or sausage with sauce. And they never, they didn't marry the two, if you can imagine that. He said, you know, I started putting them together because I was the first one to put vegetables on the pizza. As his family's pizza business approaches the 50-year milestone, Mark Malnati reflects on the origins of the most successful deep dish operation in Chicago, recalling how both his father and grandfather played a role in laying the foundation for a business built on buttery crust, Wisconsin mozzarella, and California tomatoes, all set into a high-sided, anodized steel round pan. The story of Lou Malnati's, straight ahead. I need a deep dish sausage and a thin pepperoni for here. This is Pizza City, the podcast dedicated to the art, craft, and passion behind some of the world's greatest pizzas. I'm Steve Belinsky, author of Pizza City USA and founder of Pizza City USA Tours in Chicago. Welcome to another edition of Pizza City. Very big week here in Chicago. We had a 50th anniversary for one of the iconic brands born and raised here, Lou Malnati's, um, named for the late marketing genius, pizza guru, uh, who sadly passed away at the age of 47, just a couple of years after he opened um, in Lincolnwood, just north of Chicago, and his sons, uh, Mark and Rick, took over. Mark is really the, the figurehead now of the business, but Lou Malnati, great story in Chicago. We tell it every time we do a tour here in the city. Lou was this larger-than-life uh, character and worked for many years at uh, Pizzeria Uno and Douay, uh, was rebuffed by the owner. Uh, he wanted to get some equity, get some ownership, or buy it out, and that was not an option. So um, he left, he took 14 months off, and then on St. Patrick's Day, 1971, in a predominantly Jewish neighborhood in Lincolnwood, he opened up Lou Malnati's, and there was a line around the block, apparently, on day one. There was so much buzz about it. Um, car crashed through the front wall, a brick wall. Uh, you'll hear the story today. Um, and today's story is really, uh, it's, a re- it's a repeat. Um, we talked to Mark about a year ago, and... Um, the only thing that's changed is that uh, the business is now 50 years old, uh, but we talked about this going into his anniversary. So you might hear a couple of dated references, but it's pretty much it's spot on in terms of the story. Um, I did sit down with Mark Malnati for this interview and could not have been more generous with his time. And, and I think really loves telling the story about his father, who, you know, had he been alive today, would be the king of pizza, I think, in Chicago. There are more than 60 Lou Malnati's now. Most are in Chicagoland. Some are down in Arizona, a couple in Wisconsin. Um, but they were they dominate almost every neighborhood and, and certainly every suburb in Chicago. Um, it is it is the big gorilla here. Um, and it's interesting because this year is so important in terms of Chicago pizza. My Pie is celebrating its 50th anniversary later this summer. They have all of one location. They ship a ton though on Gold Belly, and then Nancy's is the sort of the birthplace of stuffed pizza. Uh, with that second layer of dough across the top. They are celebrating their 50th anniversary. And then Pequod's, 
Um, also is kind of that 1970-71 on the cusp. So uh, 50 years for a lot of the big iconic brands now in Chicago. 2021, big year for pizza here in our city. So as I said, I talked to Mark Malnati. I wanted to ask him about his Italian grandfather, Adolfo, who was really instrumental in the creation of the very first deep dish pizza in Chicago. My grandfather was Papa, Papa Adolfo Malnati, and uh, he worked for Ricardo as the head bartender at Ricardo's restaurant, the one that's just off Michigan was just off Michigan Avenue, frequented by uh, Tribune reporters and uh, all kinds of criminals. And um, <laughs> the good old days in Chicago, <laughs> right? Uh, after Pizzeria Uno had been open just a short time. Uh, Ricardo and Sewell found out that the, the guy they had managing the place was stealing from them. And so quickly they fired him and, and they brought in uh, my grandfather to, to run the place. So he didn't actually ever work in the kitchen as far as I remember him saying. You know, I mean, he was present in the kitchen. It was a small little place, right? And he was, so he was omnipresent. He was everywhere. But I think his favorite place was sitting at the bar, actually. So the two guys you work for is Rick Ricardo and Ike Sewell. And those were the guys that Sewell was in the, I think, a liquor distributor. So he couldn't really have title to the place, but Rick Ricardo owned this place called Ricardo's. Yeah. Well, Ricardo and Sewell's wife, Florence. Um, and Florence eventually was the owner of record because Sewell uh, was the vice president at Fleischmann's and sold, yeah, like you said, sold alcohol. So Adolfo your grandfather was working kind of up front not necessarily in the kitchen making pizzas not not, not making tavern style pizzas i'm guessing no were they doing do you think tavern style thin pizzas that they passed around the bar like at that time they would have been doing at home run in or Vito and nicks yeah no they but they did the same thing with their pan pizza you know and the pizza had originated in you know back in the hills of northern italy where my two great grandmothers would be would be cooking and when when it was time to feed their family they they'd bake bread and and if they had some cheese you know because they had farm animals there they you know they'd put cheese and if they you know happened to kill a rooster that day they'd you know they'd have a little meat on the pizza they'd have tomatoes whatever vegetables they had in the garden and do you think it was a pan pizza like a sicilian you know i i i think they did cook it in a pan i think they you know they baked bread in a bread pan and um you know where, where were they from where, where in italy we're from the north we're from outside of milan a little town called varese and you know i think that uh my, my grandfather was very present to a, a recipe like this, as, you know, as was Ricardo. Ricardo was a you know, stalwart in the restaurant industry in Chicago. And so, you know, I think the, the recipe kind of uh, grew up over time. You know, I would, if you asked me who I'd credit it to, I'd credit the idea and the concept to Ricardo. I think it only makes sense. Uh, if you say Ricardo, you think probably came up with this idea. I had heard that they'd asked Blodgett, the oven company, for specs on a pan. Uh, I mean, who, who decided to say, let's create this thicker, this round pan that didn't really exist in 1943? Yeah. I would say, and this is a guess again, um, but I would say that there were two guys in the equipment business. They, they ran an outfit called Tribe, and their names were Tony Lawrence and uh, Tommy Graff. They ran around and they, you know, solved every little problem that uh, restaurateurs had as far as equipment goes and as far as containers. And they, they tried to be 
very critical to to our business. I remember them when I was a kid, and I you know I would say they probably came up with you know hey why don't, why don't you do it in this? Because as you know, in the '40s, a lot of places in Chicago were doing the tavern style. Even Home Run Inn was a pizza place for was a tavern for 20 years, and then in '47 became a like a pizzeria. They were doing this thin style, the square cut all over Chicago. So this is really the first place where they're doing this round deep pan. Now the way the the architecture. So how they build this, they decided to go dough, cheese, topping, sauce. One story, and this was directly from my father, was that when they first started making the pizza, they were, they'd make it as a you know, means to, to bring people in to sell drinks. They'd, they'd make pizza, they'd hand it out at the bar, just like you said. You, you, know, you talk about Vito and Nick's and Home Run Inn. You know, it was it was about bringing people down in their downstairs basement little lair, and you know, in uh, Pizzeria Uno. My dad said that that when he first started working there, it was 1949, I believe. They put dough on in the pan, and then either put cheese with sauce or sausage with sauce, and they never they didn't marry the two typically. They were just doing either or if you can imagine that. He said, you know, I started putting them together. He goes, I was the first one to put vegetables on the pizza. And so, you know, he get, my dad got back in the kitchen and he did spend time back in there. He was, he was quite the cook. So your dad is, is Lou Malnati, obviously. We have to introduce him to the story somehow. So Adolfo and his first wife have Lou, uh, and he grows up in the business. He's managing Uno's, and then, well, Dewey's opens up in 55. That's when they decide to call Ricardo's Uno, Pizzeria Uno, right? And then, and your dad is working, and I think he's maybe even working at Sucasa, the Mexican joint they own around the corner. And he asks uh, well, the owners, how is he going to get equity? How is he going to buy the business? And that's where it gets a little, it goes sour. Yeah, well, that wasn't until he was 40. At that point, when, you know, not long after they opened Uno, uh, or after they opened Douay, my grandfather got in a, a terrible car accident. A cab hit him out in between uh, Uno and, and Douay, and he had pins in all his, you know, all his joints, and they thought he might die. He, his hearing wasn't good before, and that, now it was terrible. He was relegated for a long time, you know, just to being at the bar, to sitting still, to, you know, once he could get up and walk. So my dad was the one who was, you know, closing Uno, closing Douay, closing Sukasa six nights a week. He'd be home on Sundays. He really, you know, carried the lion's share of those restaurants. My grandfather would come in to open and, you know, and then he'd leave. You know, that's how every good family operation should go, right? right. You know, my son's old enough. He does, right. the, he does right. the hard work. Sewell would come in to drink once in a while with friends. So Lou rightly wants to buy the business. Absolutely. And he's 40 years old. It's 1970. And he comes to Sewell. And he says, hey, what, what, what's going to happen to this once, you know, once you die or, you know, once my father, what's going to happen to this? Do I have a chance to, to get in? And he said, Lou, I love you like a son, but, you know, I'm, my plan is to sell it. They couldn't work through anything. And, you know, I, I, I guess he felt like my dad wasn't bankable or, you know, wouldn't be able to get a loan to to, to buy it, but my dad wound up leaving and took off 14 months. At that particular point, I was in high school, and it was unbelievable because all of a sudden I had a father who was around the house, and you know, my brother and I, you know, we saw our dad every day. Our entire life it had been, we saw him pretty much on Sundays, and then on Saturdays before he went to work, we'd see him for an hour. And, and then the rest of the time we just had to be quiet all day because he'd sleep all day and then go into work about four o'clock and we couldn't make any noise in the house or he'd, you know, 
you didn't want to wake him. So Sewell ends up later selling the business to a Boston-based company. I think the guy was a KFC franchise. No, per- no? Uh, Popeyes. Oh, Air- Popeyes. Aaron Spencer. Okay, right, so he ran Popeyes. Okay, so they buy it. It's based in Boston. Your father says in 1971, I'm going to open a place in Lincolnwood on St. Patrick's Day. It's interesting story like, you know, the, the, the Italian kid opens up in a Jewish neighborhood on St. Patrick's Day. There's a, sort of this weird triumvirate involved here. And then something kind of crazy happens on day one, right? First of all, it was a mob scene. And we had people lined up, you know, out the, out the door, down the block, around the corner and everything. The second thing that happens is Sid Rangel drives his Cadillac right through the wall of the building. You know, this wall right over here where we're sitting, right by that window, and uh, a woman gets a, has a broken arm who's sitting in the booth that he runs through, and, and, you know, they take Sid to the hospital. And Was your mom, like, you know, telling her husband this is a not, not a good omen, that a car crashes through the business on day one in business? <laughs> I think the fact yeah. that they were able to open again on day two and that they had friends who were bricklayers who came out here and sewed it all up and... Uh, you know. Why do you think there was a line on day one? Was it was your dad a great marketer? Because it wasn't, you know, there was no internet, obviously. How do you market the fact that you're opening this place from the guy who worked downtown for so many years? Yeah, he was an incredible marketer. I mean, he was a connector. He was he was someone who everyone knew. He was bigger than life. He, you know, he was a Marine Corps staff sergeant. He'd walk into a room and it's like, hey, hey, Lou's here. And, you know, he was six feet, 245 pounds, I think, at his, at his biggest he could fill it up. And as far as you knew, the, the recipe was pretty much the same, or did your dad tweak it from what he was do- doing downtown with uh, his father? No, no, the recipe was always the same. And the recipe is the same today. You know, we're working with dynamic products, and they change depending on the weather, depending on, you know, time of year. Um, and we, so we are always tuned in to every part of our product and what's going on with that at a given time. But uh, now the recipe stands the same. And then at, when he left to go on his own, did the relationship with his father suffer at all, or were they still close because of that? Well, the fact that his father said, you're never going to make it. <laughs> you're you're going you're gonna to be broke in two years. You know, that didn't help. But that gave him incentive to really uh, do a good job. And he opened in Lincolnwood, and then uh, later that year opened our second store in Elk Grove Village. And um, you know, I think my dad thought he was going to be Ray Kroc. The, the problem was that, you know, right after he opened the third one, he died. You know, and that was just, uh, you know, seven years into his career at Lou Malnati's. I'm 22 years downtown, but seven years after he had conceived of Malnati's, he, he was dead at 48. And then you're kind of forced to take over. Right. I had just gotten out of college. So the year I graduated college, my dad died. And my brother still had four years to go. Um, my mom was my mom was tough, willing to be in the trenches, and we had some great people around us. And and we had the third restaurant that he'd opened out in out in the South Side in Flossmoor that was dying, uh, a, a not a slow death either. You know, one bad restaurant can take down probably three good ones. But that's Aurelio's country, right? It was, and Aurelio's had just opened their flagship. They just had, you know had expanded and opened up a you know a big round uh, room and beautiful restaurant and and the people on the south the far south side in Flossmoor had never really you know didn't didn't understand deep dish weren't really interested and then besides that we totally butchered the opportunity my dad decided that you know uh, he listened to too many people and he said let let's put in electric ovens they you know the I think the same equipment guys who found the pans for him talked him into electric ovens we could do it in half the time. 
And so we had these Baker, Baker's Pride uh, stainless steel, beautiful ovens, but the product, we could never get it to cook correctly. It would look perfect on top, and the bottom would be 12 shades of black. Pizza like that, you know, you can't scrape it. It's like, it's like toast, right? You, you still taste the burn. And once you've asked somebody to wait 30 minutes for a pizza, it's hard to walk out to the table and say, okay, we burned your pizza, give us another 30 minutes. And people are, you know, people are likely to come back for that. So we, we learned a, some hard lessons out on the south side. We learned a lot about location and how important that is. And, and we learned about switching equipment and being really careful. I want to talk more about the equipment and the recipe and how you build this famous pizza. I'm going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to continue talking with Mark Malnati about the history of his legendary pizzeria started by his father. Uh, We're also going to preview some scenes from our next show coming up in two weeks, so stay with us. Welcome back to the show, everybody. We're talking with Mark Malnati today, the president uh, of, of Lou Malnati's Pizza. Been around since 1971. Uh, how many stores are there now, Mark? Uh, we're in the we're in the 50s. In the 50s, okay. I think it would be easy to say, oh, they have 50 stores. They're a chain. You know, this is Chili's. This isn't that. This is a a group of uh, 50 neighborhood stores with with people that are partners of ours in those stores that, that live and die making our pizza and making it great. The fact that we make nearly six million pizzas a year is not at all a negative. It is uh, indicative of the fact that while Chicago may have started as a square-cut, thin bar pizza city like every other city, deep dish pizza really has become the uh, iconic pizza in Chicago. It is enjoyed by people who come to town, but when you sell six million pizzas, you know, there's only a small fraction of those from outsiders, from people who come to visit. Uh, Most of our pizza is sold in, in the suburban areas of Chicago. That is true, and people do grow up, you know, eating this pizza, like we talked about Flossmore in the south side in Aurelio's town. They're really loyal to Aurelio's. People from, if you grew up in Lincolnwood or if you grew up in any of these towns where there's a Lou's, and it's referred to as Lou's typically, uh, they are very loyal to this pizza. So they're not just, you're saying they're not just the once or twice a year when the visitors come to town. You've got regulars that are coming more than that. I mean, do the math. That's a lot of stores, right, obviously. How is this constructed? You begin with the dough, obviously. You say pizza dough is a lot different than a bread dough. You also have a butter crust that's a trademark. So there's a difference between your regular and your butter crust. With the butter crust, butter is folded into the dough. Um, it's not It's not that difficult. It's a pretty simple matter. And our dough is pretty simple, too. It's a, you know, it's a yeast dough. It's a triple-rise dough. And This dough is pushed to the edge of the pan and then up along the interior wall. Yeah? We push it all the way across the bottom of the pan like a pancake. So it's just flat. And then we pinch the sides up the... You know, about halfway up the the sides of the of the pan, just high enough so that the you know, I mean, we use prodigious amounts of cheese and sausage and other ingredients, and we want it just high enough so that the sauce doesn't bleed over and you know soften the crust. Are these anodized steel pans? Are they cast iron pans? Somebody told me that this is the best store in Lincolnwood here because you've got these seasoned pans. What's the story with the pans? Yeah, they're anodized, and the, and the story with the pans is that every time we open a new store, 
we cull off uh, pans from s- several of the stores around where that new store is opening so that so that we never open a store with brand new pans. We open them with the seasoned, you know, blackened pans because because it makes a difference, I, you know, it makes a difference as far as taste, but it also makes a difference as far as just authenticity. It's like taking a little bit of the starter from the mother starter and then propagating the other batch. That's right. Steel. Yeah, that's <laughs> steel. Okay, so the dough is pushed out to the edge. Somebody told me, actually, Rich Labriola was saying, you know, deep pans, like Burt Katz at Burt's and Pequod's, they, they call it a pan pizza, not a deep dish. My understanding is the pan pizza is the dough is just pushed to the edge of the pan, but a deep dish, like at your place or Bartoli's or My Pie, they lift the dough up along the interior wall. Does that make sense to you? I always thought that all deeps are pans, not all pans are deep. I don't try to differentiate between the two. You know, we're, we're trying to pull the dough up the side of the pan. We're trying to pinch it very tightly so that when it rises off of there, it is still thin. It's not what you see sometimes in the pictures that New Yorkers use to criticize Chicago pizza as lasagna in a bread bowl. It, that is not Milnati's. That's stuffed, by the way, folks. Stuffed and deep dish are very different, and you've heard me rant about stuff, so I'm not going to waste any time on that. Without the butter, if you didn't do the butter crust, is there some fat in there? Though? There's some oil, obviously. Sure. Right, so then f- the first thing that goes on is cheese, and it's slices or shred? Yeah, we use slices, and we use slices because it's easier to apply the raw sausage to a, a, uh, a layer of sliced cheese than it is if the cheese would be shredded. Are you loyal to a particular mozzarella that you want to name check? Yeah, I I don't really care to name check it, but we have a dairy in the middle of the state of Wisconsin that we have used for the entire time we've existed, which is 50 years next year, and a lot of their production comes to Milnati's, as you might imagine, Uh, and they do, they make mozzarella the old fashion way. It's not a mechanized, you know, highly mechanized factory. Both has a decent pull but doesn't melt all over the pan, isn't isn't sloppy if you get it to go and, and get it home in a box. Whole milk or full fat mutts? It's a it's in in between. Now the interesting thing about the sausage, and this is Chicago, so we're talking sausage, not pepperoni, although you do offer pepperoni, but in Chicago land it's sausage. You're you have a little different if you don't specify crumbled if you order a sausage pizza, it goes on raw, like we call it, you know, the pinched and pressed, but yours pinched and pressed is really kind of a like a pancake, no. typically, or no? No, I wouldn't say it's a pancake, but, you know, it covers the entire pizza and and still allows uh, little gaps for the cheese to kind of bubble through. I think that it's really important, if you order a sausage pizza, that you get some sausage in every bite. And I think if, if you just spot it on, like, like others do, that, that doesn't happen. I'm a guy who has always looked for a symphony of flavors, and I want them in every bite. I think you have, a, you have an acronym that you talk about that... OBR, optimal bite ratio. Yeah, well, I'm not smart enough to make that up, but, but I've always preached that you know, every bite wants to have a little bit of that, that golden flaky crust and, and the mozzarella jumping through and, and the sausage and the tomato sauce and, and whatever else. And you want to be able to taste it all in every bite and see it meld together. You don't want areas where there's a sausage desert. Sausage desert, okay. So, But if I specify crumbled, they, they will just do specks of sausage? Yes, they will. Okay. And then sauce is the last thing. And I know you are, fan, you are fanatical about going to California and buying everything at once. We send a team to 
California every year, and um, we're using a couple different pickers right now. We get in the factory, we're watching how they're peeling, we're watching you know, the color of the tomato, we're watching the viscosity, the thickness of it, we're watching the sweetness, we're measuring everything, and they're out there for the better part of a week, standing there to say, okay, go, let's pack ours right now. This is the, this is the high point of the season. This is when the tomatoes are going to be the absolute best, the absolute freshest. They're going to stand for you know, for until next season. And then the last thing, typically in Chicago, I see dried oregano and maybe pecorino romano. Is that what happens here? Yeah, we use a blend of romano and parmesan as well as some oregano. So about 40 minutes or so, give or take? You no, know, it's a little shorter than that. I mean, if we're busy and the oven's full, then it might take 35 or 40 minutes if you've got a loaded pizza. 30 minutes from the time it goes in the oven, which, you know, doesn't doesn't account for the time it takes the server to take the order, to get it back to the kitchen, to prepare the pizza, to get it ready, then to tag the pizza. So, yeah, it can take a little longer than 30 to get back to your table from the time you order it. At about what temp, like 500 or so? We're at 550. Okay, and so these are always Blodgett's. You guys are loyal to the Blodgett ovens. Those are from Connecticut, I think. Stone decks, you like the stone because it's a good transfer of heat. You get to sort of, you get to bake that undercarriage so it's not floppy and soggy and blonde. Right, it's, it, it does create a consistency in the pizzas that we don't get if because we tried it without you know with just the steel deck and and it, it you know it's not the same product so we're we always uh we and we have a stone deck that's probably an inch and a quarter inch and a half and we've tried other ovens besides the blodgett but we've always come back to the blodgett Now, just to clear up any confusion in Chicago, I think some people maybe confuse. You know, the names are similar. There's another brand here called Paisanos. My understanding is your grandfather, Adolfo, got remarried, and then they had a son, Rudy Jr., and Rudy Jr., Rudy Malnati Jr. opened up Paisanos 20 years after your father opened up Lou's in 91. Does that sound right? Rudy's in the business as well. In, uh, you know, he, does, he does a real nice job. So he was your, your dad's half-brother? Correct. Okay, gotcha. He's about the same age as me, a little younger, um, but uh, he's created quite a following. And I always tell this story in our tours. Louise Benash was a sort of a third leg of this. She worked with your grandfather at Dewey's in the 50s. She opened a place in Crestwood, which is a southern suburb. She passed away, but her kids still run Luisa's to this day. They sort of, so there's a little bit of a connection to the old school, the old guys, right? Well, everybody's connected. I mean, you know, Gino's East was connected because they, uh, the cab driver's, came over and, and paid the head cook out of Uno double what she was making. And, you know, and everybody has a little bit of a connection. We were talking about, you know, downtown pizzas in Chicago. People come to Chicago for a weekend. They don't go to, to Andersonville and Humboldt Park. I mean, they spend their time downtown. They go see a show, architectural tour. In my book, as we were talking about, like, you know, I'm, I kind of take to task a lot of the old places, feel like they haven't changed much. You've had a lot of success downtown, though. You've got five locations. Now you're opening up on Michigan Avenue beneath the Wrigley Building. Uh, I know you've got a really successful store on Wells. You probably disagree with that. I mean, I'll eat some crow if I have to. You disagree because you feel like people, locals and tourists, are going back to your stores. We are at capacity most every day and night, so... Um you know, there's a there's a significant demand now. I understand what you're saying and uh, about you know some of our competitors. I, I think that to last 50 years in this business or 60 or 70 years, it it, it takes a lot. And, you know, it takes a lot for the next generation to to follow through on what the generation before it did. And and some of these places have been sold a couple times to you know to different 
corporate you know, venues. They may not have the personal touch anymore. That's different than what you'll find at Milnati's. So, you so don't lump us in with all that. I apologize. <laughs> Uh, but you see, you, all the stores, as many as there are, you, you feel like kind of like Let Us Entertain You in a way. They're partnerships and they're independent in a way, an independent spirit, as opposed to being like a franchisee from a McDonald's or something. Exactly. Tell us where we're sitting right now. We're in the mothership in Lincolnwood. It does feel like somebody's basement with the plywood on the walls and lots of Bears memorabilia. Describe this to somebody who's never been to the original Lou's. This building was the first schoolhouse in, in Lincolnwood, and then it was turned into a restaurant by a guy named Tony Novak um, in the 60s. It was famous for a long time, and, um, and then my dad and mom bought it, uh, turned it into Malnati's. It, uh, the first year they were open, they had a, a giant party the Bears co-hosted to celebrate the life of Brian Piccolo. And if you're not from Chicago or you're too young, um watched the movie Brian's Song. That was with James Conn, I remember. That was one of the first movies that made me cry as a kid when I saw that. That was just a beautiful movie by Brian Piccolo. All right, last question. I ask this to everybody on the podcast. Knowing what you know now, and you have spent pretty much your whole life in pizza and around pizza, what would you tell yourself, I don't know, a couple decades ago, before you really got into expansion, before you got, you know, went down this path of pizza as the rest of your life, what would you tell your younger self to save yourself some trouble? You know, I don't feel like I've had a lot of trouble. I mean, we've made mistakes along the way, and we've... Well, no electric ovens, you said, like on the south side. Yeah, those nights were terrible. But, you know, all in all, if I look back on, um, you know, 40 years of a career in, in pizza, I, I think the thing that I maybe would do different would be to take more risks. And and to, to try other things in the food business besides pizza. We opened a uh, fish taco stand a couple years ago in Old Town, and we had such a tremendous time doing that. And, and I think if I would have done some of those things earlier in my life, uh, I could have had a lot of fun with those. Mark Malnati, such a pleasure. Good to talk with you. Um, and thanks for sharing your story with us. And uh, congratulations on all the success here. Well, thanks a lot, Steve. Fun being on your show. All right, coming up in two weeks, a trip to the Florida Panhandle, where tucked in among the tourist tchotchke shops and bars selling grouper sandwiches, a beacon of wood-fired pizza with a clam pie inspired by the late Franny's in Brooklyn. But I did something a little different here, the way I made my sauce and stuff. So I, I basically, I reduced the liquid that I opened the clams up in. We always use fresh clams from Florida. And then I reduced the sauce down almost all the way, and then I add cream and reduce that by half. So it takes very oceanic, the sauce. So um, we just want it to be clam, clam, knock you over the head with clams. <laughs> I'll talk with both the owner and the chef at Bud and Alley's Pizza Bar in Seaside, Florida, where they hired a well-respected New York City pizzaiolo to come down and help them set up shop. That's in two weeks on April 2nd. Remember to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And please remember to review us. would love to know what you like or dislike about the show. We're at Pizza City USA on Instagram, but on Twitter it's Pizza City Tours. And speaking of tours, take one the next time you're in town. We are restarting all of our tours with our vaccinated docents the first week of June. More information about them and how to get my book at PizzaCityUSA.com. Bureaucratic wrote and performed our theme song, and be safe, everybody. Thanks for listening, and here's wishing you an optimal bite ratio, always.